From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Over the last couple of months, climate disasters have erupted around the world. In the U.S. alone, we've seen wildfires in the West, tornadoes in the Midwest, and hurricanes pummeling the Gulf and East Coast. The environments we live in have become hostile to our health, to our livelihoods, and to our communities. Many have been forced to leave their homes, and some will never be able to return. Globally, nearly 24 million people have been displaced due to climate effects since 2008. But this issue, both in the U.S. and around the world, isn't impacting everyone equally. Black, brown, and indigenous people are disproportionately impacted by climate change. This is a racial justice issue, an immigration issue, and an indigenous rights issue. Shamira Levine of St. James Parish, Louisiana, knows the connection between climate change and racism firsthand. My name is Shamira Levine, and I am a member of Rise St. James, and I'm also the executive assistant at Rise St. James. I'm from St. James, Louisiana, and born and raised by the Mississippi River. Shamira and her mother, Sharon, started Rise St. James, a faith-based community-led organization advocating for climate justice in their town. Justice, they say, looks like preventing and stopping big corporations from building chemical plants or operating them in their neighborhood, polluting both their air and their water. The environmental issues are definitely impacting marginalized communities and poor Black and brown communities. For instance, in St. James' case, the chemical plants that are in St. James Parish are systematically built in the districts where there is predominantly poor Black and brown communities. Because St. James Parish, as some people may not know, is pretty much split. It's about 50% Black, it's about 50% Caucasian or other. However, the plants are not in the districts that are more Caucasian. They are all, every single one is in the district that is poor Black communities. A 2017 report from the NAACP and the Clean Air Task Force affirms what Shamira is seeing in her community. The report showed that African Americans are 75% more likely than other Americans to live in areas situated near facilities that produce hazardous waste. While the problem has grown in recent years, Shamira told us that for as long as she can remember, St. James has been impacted by toxic waste and pollution. As a little girl, when I would pass by, we would drive at night, I would see the chemical plants. And all I saw would be metal, and I would see lights and tall towers and steam smoking, blowing out, fire, you know, dispersing the emissions into the air. And I honestly thought, wow, this is so amazing. I thought the chemical plants was like where Santa made the the toys. It it just looked like a big factory. And my naive eyes, you know, my my youthful eyes, I was like, I used to stare out the window in the backseat at the plants. And because I would just see the lights lit up. And I honestly thought like, wow, we are so fortunate because even at nighttime, it's lit up around here. It wasn't until I grew up and... I would hear the word cancer alley or whatever, but I never thought, I never thought too deeply about it. It wasn't until I honestly got to college and I heard my professor speaking about cancer alley and I perked up and I was like, cancer alley. Okay. I know that's where I'm from. 
And he started explaining it. And I realized that we were called Cancer Alley because of all the plants that were built in St. James and the emissions and the toxic chemicals that they are putting out into the Mississippi River that I grew up on, the air that I was breathing, the water was polluted. Growing up, all I knew is that we couldn't drink the faucet water or we would get sick. No one ever explained to me why. So those same towers and those same lights that I thought we were so fortunate to have were actually killing us. The people that I grew up, the family members that I knew who passed away from cancer, who had all these different diseases and illnesses, were being exposed to the same things that I thought were a blessing to us. So Cancer Alley has gotten that name because of all the chemical plants in this small stretch of 85 miles where there are people. This is not a deserted area. There are people living there. And it was so eye-opening and incredible. And I was just blown away. I really entered into a deep sadness about it when I learned about it. It was hidden in plain sight. And I had no clue what it was when I was growing up. So now that I'm older and I've become educated about it, I really look at it like the audacity for these plants to do this and to do it so boldly and to do it so in our face. In 2018, the governor of Louisiana and Formosa Plastics announced a plan for a $9.4 billion chemical plant to be built in St. James Parish, in Shamira's neighborhood. When Rise St. James heard about this plan, they got to work, advocating for the plans to be reversed. The fear was that any increase in pollution would decimate the community and force the residents to leave, an option that Shamira says isn't just inconvenient, but given the history of the Black residents in this community, is deeply unjust. We're saying, hey, instead of us being displaced, we're going we're gonna to fight back and say, no, how about you go somewhere else? Go back, go live, go by the politicians who feel like this is just fine and feel like we should, we should move for them to be able to make profit off of our land. The thing is, the Black people that live in St. James are the descendants of slaves, enslaved peoples, who were brought here without their permission and who settled in St. James. The Mississippi River was a port for slaves to be brought in. So we have ancestors that are closely connected with enslaved people who were put onto this land. So they were forced onto this land and had to endure the climate of the time that they were in. And we are the descendants of of those same people who fought and built this land and we are saying we have rights to this land. We have rights to live here. We have rights to live in our hometown and our hometown to not be threatened by billionaires who care less about it and want to disperse all of these toxic chemicals that are killing us. How about they leave? Don't tell us that we, we need to leave. And it's interesting because we're fighting for that. And then we have natural disasters like hurricanes that come and people are displaced. And, you know, when you are displaced and your home isn't right, you are in survival mode. You can't even focus on the other things in life when you're trying to make sure you have somewhere to stay. So right now we are in survival mode. We are trying to secure where we stay. And this is our home. We have rights to it. Our ancestors worked blood, sweat and tears on this land. And we're not going to leave. We're not going to continue to let our lives be just another statistic or just forgotten about, no, this is our home and we're not accepting that. The displacement of Black, Brown, and Indigenous people is a huge concern for those fighting for climate justice. It's also the focus of journalist Debbie Lockwood's new book, 1001 Voices of Climate Change. 
Devi traveled the world for five years, documenting the impact of climate change on water and the subsequent displacement of people. In her travels, she found small island nations struggling to stay physically above the waterline. She believes what's happening to the island nation of Tuvalu should be a warning sign of what's to come for anyone living along a coastline. Tuvalu has been occupied by thriving indigenous peoples for the last 3,000 years, until now. In Tuvalu, people are experiencing really intense and intensifying impacts of climate change when it comes to their water supply. So around 10,000 people call these islands home. And I met a man named Tuala Katea, who was the chief meteorological officer when I visited in, in 2014. And he told me that in the early 2000s, people in the outer islands started to notice that their taro and pulaka crops, which are these two starchy staples of Tuolan cuisine, that they were starting to rot. And the culprit was found to be saltwater intrusion linked to sea level rise. And after some further study and bringing together data that had been gathered at the main wharf for um, about a decade at that point, it was found that the sea level was rising in Tuvalu at around four millimeters per year. And that doesn't sound like that much, right? But that has a huge impact when the highest point is only 13 feet or so above sea level in the islands, right? It's a very low-lying island nation. And there used to be a fresh water lens under the island that you could dig a shallow well and have access to water for all sorts of things. And that water in the last... 20 years or so has become both salty and contaminated. And that has huge impacts on people when it comes to both food and water security. And it's one of those things I can't stop thinking about, right? Younger generations of Tuvaluans, many of them are deciding that they don't see their future in this place and that it's an island nation that by some estimates might be uninhabitable in the next 50 years. That's my lifetime. That's the lifetime of other Tuvaluans who I met, right? But then older generations were adamant that climate change was an act of God. They told me that they didn't want to leave the bones of their ancestors who were buried in the front yard. And it made me ask some really big questions about what home is and whether home can be up and moved to another place. But also, my complicity in these things. I grew up in the U.S. Historically, we are the largest emitter of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And while we are experiencing impacts of climate change here, of course, those impacts are felt unequally around the world, right? No one is asking me to move from my ancestral homelands or from the place where my grandparents live, right? But um, many Tuvaluans are living with that reality right now. And it's, it's a really difficult decision to face and one that I think is going to continue to intensify in the conversation globally over the course of my lifetime. Like both Tuvaluans and residents of St. James Parish, people of color around the world are facing an unequal burden of climate and environmental impacts. The intersection between climate change, racial justice, indigenous justice, and immigrant justice is what is known as climate justice. And climate justice is of critical concern to us at the ACLU. It's sort of linking into like the right to, to live, right? It, it, if it becomes impossible to live in, in a certain place or if living somewhere is 
dangerous or actively poisoning us or making it, you know, just difficult to to survive, then that that is a, a human right, the, the right to have access to safe water to drink and to be able to just live and thrive. If you peel back enough layers of the problem, you can see that climate is not always, but often the driver of why people are choosing to move places. If we change where rain falls, for example, that changes which crops are able to grow in which places. And that changes where people are able to live and survive. And then there could be violence that's linked to scarcity of food or water that then drives people to make the difficult decision to uproot their family and their lives and try to start over somewhere new, right? And, you know, I've heard folks linking everything from some of the migration crises in Central America to, you know, conflict in Syria in the 2010s, right, to these issues. And it's, I don't know, water and climate change are two of those things that are so beautifully and difficultly intertwined in everything. And in order to understand, um, you know, immigration and migration, we have to understand why people are making the decision to move in the first place. We've talked some about water, obviously, because the the book centered around it. But on the flip side of flooding and storms and soil salinity, there's the devastation caused by intensifying wildfires. Um, are they connected at all? My understanding is that drought contributes mightily to these conditions that um, make the fires worse harder to extinguish, longer lasting, covering larger swaths of, of land. And yeah, it's a, an issue that's kind of loosely connected with water, right? In, in as much as where the rain falls, again, determines where, where those droughts are in the first place. It also feels like the combination of the two happening at the same time is contributing to this larger feeling of the globe shrinking a bit. Did you find that in your discussions with people, the sense of the globe shrinking and how that was affecting decision-making? I think that it's felt more like that recently than before. Again, starting in 2014, climate change was kind of this fringe niche thing to talk about. And I think it's really in large part thanks to some incredible youth activists like Greta and others who are demanding that climate change yeah, be a part of the conversation internationally. And also just frankly that it's becoming harder to not either experience the impacts directly or know someone who's impacted by anything from wildfire smoke to a flood. Well, and just naming too, it's it's the populations of people impacted is growing to the point where it's not just people who are people of color or on small islands. It's everybody. And I think better and worse, that does affect the conversation. I mean, we saw the floods in Europe, Central Europe this year, and the fires in California and the Northeastern floods. Mm-hmm. And fires in Greece too, right? It's, right. It's, um, I don't know, in some ways it feels kind of apocalyptic. Yes. I want to talk about displacement a little in particular because that is definitely an area that intersects in a really big way with the ACLU and the work that we do on immigrants' rights. Can you talk about displacement as a concept with climate change and also how displacement comes not just from climate change, but also from the health impacts of climate pollution, say, with new plastics plants in St. James Parish, Louisiana? You know, what kind of pressure will climate change put on healthcare? And can you help us understand globally what displacement is? 
Sure. I mean, to the health piece, climate change is absolutely a a public health crisis. And there have been many incredible scientists and doctors who have pointed to that directly in terms of it intensifies issues that were already there or creates new ones, whether that's connected with pollution or even just, frankly, the mental health impacts of having to deal with so much, you know, there, I, I've even seen studies about how, you know, instances of domestic violence can increase after a hurricane or after a flood, right? It's, it's not a pretty picture, right? And on the displacement side, I mean, yeah, it's becoming more difficult, if not impossible, to live in, in many places that are on the front lines of climate change around the world. And I know that there's, you know, different ideas about different language around these things. I first had the idea to go to Tuvalu because a person I was close with at the time was taking a class on climate and immigration. And she passed me an article about the idea of climate refugees from Tuvalu moving to New Zealand and moving to Fiji. And she said, hey, you might be interested in this. It was very much a case of migration, a case of displacement, a case of people entering the Pacific Access category visa in order to have an opportunity for their future that they felt would be more stable in another country. Tuvaluans are not alone in their plight. The UN International Organization for Migration currently estimates that anywhere from 200 million to 1.5 billion people are expected to become climate refugees by 2050 in search of safe places to live away from climate destruction. Climate change is kind of intensifying conflicts across multiple regions of multiple countries in Central America, and that that is compelling people to move north um, and to try, again, to find more stable, less violent life in the U.S. And as there continues to be a climate crisis, there will continue to be that exodus, that movement, that desire to come to the U.S. or come elsewhere. Central America is among the most vulnerable regions on the planet for climate change, despite producing less than 1% of global carbon emissions, according to the World Bank. Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador have all endured five years of drought over the past decade, leaving many parts of these countries with food insecurity and joblessness. Last year's hurricanes Eta and Iota destroyed homes, crops, and roads, affecting 8 million people across Central America. Widespread climate crises have created economic and political instability in the region, leaving many to flee north to the U.S.-Mexico border. In April, Vice President Kamala Harris announced $310 million in humanitarian assistance for the countries in the region, with the aim of helping to tackle the root causes of migration from Central America. President Biden also signed an executive order, overhauling the U.S. Refugee Resettlement Program and Plan for Climate Migration. The underlying theme was adapting to climate change rather than overcoming it. But I asked Debbie if she thought that's an effective use of time, money, and resources. It comes down to needing to reduce our use of fossil fuels nationally and to be a leader in that space internationally as quickly as possible. 2050 is even too late, right? This is something we need to be implementing immediately. And yes, I understand that fossil fuel infrastructure is a part of what feels like every part of our economy. And yet there is so much to lose and so much still to act 
now for in order to to preserve, right? And so with the knowledge that displacement is connected, of course, as we discussed earlier with climate change in a variety of ways, I would advocate that we take responsibility to accept people who need to migrate for any number of reasons, right? And that I know even with folks who are coming from Afghanistan right now, that there's a a housing crisis, right? Where we don't have enough in the way of affordable housing for people who do come. So I would hope that we create more of that in communities across the country, because it's something that's so urgently needed, not only from people who are moving here from other parts of the world, but also for folks domestically. And that is, is a climate issue too. On a societal level, so leaving the politics aside and just talking about our communities, family communities, neighborhoods, are there changes that we can all make um, on our own about the way we talk about this issue or think about this issue or approach this issue that we could all consider? Yeah. So the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication has done some really incredible research and longitudinal studies about exactly this, about how Americans talk about climate change. And in some cases, the best ways to start a conversation about climate change. It can be really hard to discuss these issues because we have this kind of vortex of silence around it, right? It's like, how do you even get started? But talking about climate change in some way is better than talking about it. Not at all. And Furthermore, one piece of their research that really resonated with me has to do with values-based communication. If you come at someone who perhaps has a different take on climate than you do with a fact or a statistic or starting out with something that could feel confrontational, it can be really hard for that person on the other end to engage without feeling kind of put off. And it's much stronger instead to start a conversation about climate change with values-based communication. And that means establishing a common ground with the person you're having a conversation about climate change with. That could be that we both value family or we both value having a safe future for kids or we both value access to safe drinking water or any other number of things, even just spending time in a cherished outdoor spot, right? And then using that as a jumping off point to starting to talk about climate change more generally is a great way to have those kind of dialogues. I would also say that sometimes talking and listening go hand in hand, right? But I think we can all do more to to listen better and to listen across lines of difference and, and to prioritize voices that don't always get to be heard. It's not always the most powerful voice in the room that's the most important, right? And and by amplifying the voices of folks around us who um, are experiencing these impacts firsthand, my hope is that that can direct us to solutions that are more viable, more meaningful, and ultimately more impactful. Starting these conversations with community members helped Shamira and her mom, Sharon, start Rye St. James, and thus far, successfully keep Formosa Plastics from building the new plant. Shamira said originally, people weren't sure they wanted to fight against Formosa Plastics. However, Shamira believes people decided to come together both because of their faith and to honor their ancestors, many of whom are buried in slave tombs on the land where Formosa was set to build. I look at this as bigger than us. I look at this as this was generations to come. I look at this as our ancestors who were brought to this to our land and our parish, our community. I feel like this has been brewing up for generations before we were even here. And I think that 
they were all waiting for a woman like Sharon to have the vision and the courage and the stubbornness to go for it and the faith to go for it. And when you have that type of spiritual backing, there's nothing that's going to get in the way. There's nothing that's going to stop it. This is, this is God's doing because it's been going on long enough. And it's no accident that Sharon, a retired school teacher, decides that she wants to fight back in a community where some people felt hopeless and they felt like there was nothing they could do. And she was told that there was nothing that she can do, that nothing we can do, that they're going to come in. They're bigger than us. They have more money than us. But she was a woman who had faith. And with her faith, God has been pouring into our organization, into our home, into our family, into her heart, into our minds, and letting us know and giving us that comfort and that confidence and the courage to know that this has already been planned before my mom ever even thought about it. So when you have that type of spiritual understanding, you know that this is not going to happen. As for now, after litigation and community outrage, the U.S. Army Corps halted the new plant's building and as of August, announced that they will be conducting a thorough review of the environmental toll the project would have on the community. The governor never expected anyone to fight back. That's why that's, that's not going to happen. So I would advise when you have your ancestors and you have such spiritual people backing you and you have God backing you, I would, I would say to them, just go ahead and give up now. Just go ahead and let it go because it's already done. It's not going to happen because the power that you have the money, you have the billions, but the power we have is priceless. The backing that we have is spiritual. We have thousands and thousands of our ancestors standing behind us. Recently, the community of St. James Parish was pummeled by Hurricane Ida. The people of St. James Parish live in a town where toxic waste is pumped into their water and air, contributing to carbon emissions and thus climate disasters. A challenge begets another challenge. The town's location off of the Gulf makes its residents highly vulnerable to powerful hurricanes and tropical storms. But the community is fierce, and they're fighting. Shamira says the damage from the recent storm is great, but she believes her neighbors are greater. Well, St. James just got electricity back probably about a week ago. So they went a little over two weeks without any power, electricity, or anything. And Rise stepped up to the plate and gave out to the community, was giving out supplies, water, gas, generators, and so on and so forth. So right now in St. James, you know, there's still a lot of cleaning up. There's rebuilding. The internet is iffy. The mosquitoes. The mosquitoes, my goodness gracious. The mosquitoes are so much worse right now because there's been water that's been sitting up. Everything is rebuilding right now except for the plants. The chemical plants are thriving. They, they, didn't, they didn't miss a beat. So it's really interesting to be passing by the plants while you're going to bring water to people and help out because they didn't miss a beat. They're fine. They're booming as usual. I want to give, give a shout out to everyone that has been helping all of the angels, I call them angels, people who come around with good energy, who have been helping people tarp their roofs, who have been helping people to clean up, who are helping people move or move trees from the driveway when the parish council wasn't taking care of that. 
the people who have come from Mississippi, New Orleans, Lake Charles, Lafayette, all over, and everyone who has donated, I want to give you our sincere love and appreciation. You have been a light for us. You have been, you have really made things a lot easier when we are out there working and people don't have any electricity and it's super hot and it's mosquitoes and it's just a smell and it's, you feel like people forgotten about you. All of the people who have helped and have reached out and have been given their time and their money and energy, we are so grateful for you. You are a heartbeat. You are empowering us. You support us. We feel better knowing that we have you there. Thanks so much to Shamira Levine and Debbie Lockwood for sharing their stories with us. And thanks to you all for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. And one more announcement from us. More information about all of our episodes can now be found on our website, aclu.org slash podcast. We have a new and improved page that allows you to find resources on each episode and search for old episodes by subject matter. We love the new site and we hope you do too. Until next week, stay strong.